If you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Using the Blue Pew Bibles, it's on page 981. Be closing out chapter 2 this morning. But before we come to God's word, let us ask for his help. My Father, we do give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks that we can gather together and we give you thanks that you have redeemed us as a people together. And this is a body. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us what it means and what it specifically looks like to live within that body. Oh, we need your help for we are often blind. So would you show us where we may look more like Christ? Pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, I'll be beginning in verse 19 and reading through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of our Lord. But for most of us, we recognize, we affirm that it is good for Christians to be a part of a church, part of the body. Understand, as, as Neil's been going through Hebrews, that we will not endure in our faith if we are not meeting regularly with our brothers and sisters. And some of us maybe even have a sense that, yeah, there's some churches out there that do this better than others, some churches that would be more beneficial to join. So we commit to a, a local specific body. We attend more Sundays than not, maybe even attend Sunday evening. Maybe we participate in a ministry or two, get involved in the life of the congregation. But sometimes, well, I think we recognize that 
It is good and right to be a part of Christian community. We then sometimes treat other Christians as a necessary evil in order for us to be a part of that community. We often tell ourselves, if it weren't for all of these other people, fellowship would be really easy. As I argued throughout the series here in Philippians, the church in Philippi is experiencing a similar strain of disagreement. There is division and dispute and dissension and disharmony that is permeating throughout the congregation, starting to crack the foundation of the household of God. And so in the opening of his letter, Paul spends two whole chapters laying out a case, instructing them towards greater unity. And always grounding his commands for unity in the foundation of theological understanding. He's reminded the Philippians of the reality of their partnership in the gospel, of the missional implications for their unity. He's shown them the humility of Christ, their Savior, as the source for their humility. And he's held out the promises of God's active preservation of them in their endurance in the faith. All of that meant to reinforce the commands that he has given. And now, after having sufficiently addressed the division issues, having laid out a theological foundation that is meant to spur them on towards greater unity, we come to this section where it seems that Paul becomes a travel agent who is explaining the itinerary of his companions. It seems strange to us, but Paul is writing in an age where you can't just email, text, or shoot a phone call to someone to let them know when you're coming. These type of travel logs were actually very common in the ancient world, and pretty common in Paul's letters as well. And they normally come at the end of his letters, but here Paul includes it in the middle because he's explaining that the plans that he has for Timothy and for Epaphroditus are, are more than just travel plans. He's sending these two men specifically so that they might go to the church in Philippi and be an example that is meant to reinforce the points that he's already made in his letter. In many ways, he's holding them up as models who exemplify unity and brotherly love and, and the humility that he has just called the Philippians themselves to put on. That's why he includes these plans here. He's telling the Philippians, I'm sending you two brothers so that they can show you what it looks like to obey the commands that I've given. And this reality of these two men being sent as examples begs the question for us. Who are the models that we are to look to in our own lives? Who shows us how to live in the body of Christ? You know, we live in an age of 
unlimited communication opportunities. And we live in an age of the quote-unquote celebrity pastor. We find dozens of gifted preachers and teachers and authors and bloggers and Bible study leaders who can all teach us what a particular passage means and can help us understand the character of God better. You can go online and watch thousands of hours of sermons or lectures, can learn the clearest theology of our day. There's certainly much to be thankful for to live in an age like this with sort of an abundance of riches, an embarrassment of riches, of theological teaching and education. We'd be thankful that the Lord has given so much talent to so many men and women that their work can be disseminated far and wide, that we can profit from it. We ought to be thankful for that. But in those thousands of hours of good, faithful Bible teaching, do you know what those preachers and teachers cannot do? Something that is impossible to be done by them. They cannot show you how to live as a Christian. They cannot model for you Christ-like humility. You, you can't watch them hold their tongue as someone utters falsehoods to their face. You can't watch them patiently bear with someone who is sinning against them. You can't watch them humbly listen to someone who disagrees with them, thinking they want to find where they're wrong. In fact, often they're teaching you what they think is right. Of all of the good, and there's much good that comes from these teachers, but of all of the good that comes from these pastors, there is still a gap in our Christian formation, if we do not have people in our lives who can show us with their life what it looks like to put faith in action, can learn all of the theology, all of the Bible information, but if there's not someone showing you how to put all that in practice with their life, there is a gap in your Christian Formation. This is why discipleship in the local church is not just a cherry on top of the church. It is not optional. It is essential. We have to have more mature men and women in our lives showing us what it looks like to live as a Christian. See, Paul can tell the Philippians all day long how they're supposed to live. He can develop all the theological proofs that he wants to help them in their obedience. But what the Philippians need in addition to that are the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus to show them how to put it into action. So again, I ask them, where do we look for those examples of how to live in Christian community? Who are you spending time with that is meant to model for you Christian 
obedience. I hope there are people in your lives, in this church, that you can walk with, that can come alongside of you and show you what this looks like. It's also worth asking ourselves, am I the type of person that I would want someone looking to as an example for how to live in a Christian community? Not the expectation that you're perfect, but are you setting forth an example of godliness, an example of humility, an example of unity in the faith? You know, we could read these descriptions of Timothy and Epaphroditus and think, oh yeah, Paul's just laying out more qualifications for church officers, and this sermon should really be about what you look for in your pastors and your elders and your deacons. But what Paul is doing is he is sending the best men that he has because he wants the Philippians to actually change their own behavior. When he says that he's sending Timothy so he's going to be cheered by the news of you, what he's saying is, I'm going to send Timothy so he can help you put these into practice so that when I come and I see that you've actually done it, there will be rejoicing. The expectation is that the Philippians' lives are going to be changed. And so my question again is, are our lives individually changing? That is, as you look to the examples of godliness in the church, are you becoming a better example of godliness? Again, would you want someone following you? Would you want to hold yourself up as an example to that younger believer? I think this is something we need to consider because whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, almost all of us are probably an example of faithfulness to somebody. Unless you're going to live on a hermit on a mountain somewhere, there will be people in the church who are looking up to you. Again, it's obvious, right? Our elders, our deacons, Okay, we're going to look to them, we're going to look to their wives as examples. We get that. But this happens in so many other contexts within the church as well. Sunday school teachers, kids in your class, they look up to you, not just in 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. They're watching the way you live outside of class. Nursery workers, same thing to you. Those kids, you've been raising them since they were infants. You've been helping to care for them. As they grow, they're looking to you. In our fellowship groups, people are, are watching us, how we handle ourselves. Maybe you think, well, yeah, but I'm not a ministry leader, so that, that's for all of those other people who have signed up for something. And it's, it's not the case. Even if you're not an official ministry leader, you are still a leader to someone. Love the Ebenezer group. All of you older folks, simply by virtue of your age, people are looking up to you. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, these elderly people to show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And when you're teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That, that's simply by virtue of their age. People are looking to you. Parents, your kids are looking to you. 
for what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. Even if you're just a friend to somebody, that friend is looking to you. You're leading them. Kids, this isn't just for adults. You are all leaders as well. Your classmates, your teammates, they're all looking at you. Your siblings are going to look up to you. The kids in the next grade lower are going to be looking at you as an example. All of us are exerting some type of influence on somebody else. We are influencing their faith. So again, we ask, are we walking in such a way that we are setting a Christ-like example to them? Yes, the main point of this text is to look at those who will set an example. But as we consider what that means and the ripple effects that that has, we must also be those who, who follow that example and then lead by example for others to follow us. And as Paul says in Corinthians, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. We want to put that into practice. We want to follow those who are in front of us so that we can then turn around and say to others, then follow me. As I follow Paul, as he follows Christ. So because Paul can't be in Philippi to set the example himself, he sends two men who are going to be worth imitating. And for each of these men, he provides a logical reason for why he sends them, as well as a spiritual reason. Reasons. So we're going to take both these men in the order he gives them, starting with Timothy, first looking at just logistically, why is Paul sending him? And if you know Timothy, he is a young man who began joining Paul on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. Seems to be a very capable minister, a very capable servant that Paul loves to send out in situations like this. He sends them twice to the Corinthians, sends them once to the Thessalonians, he's sending here to the Philippians. Timothy's in Ephesus leading the church when Paul writes to him in First and Second Timothy. So Paul loves sending Timothy to churches. He's sort of the, the cleanup guy, uh, that, that interim pastor who comes in and kind of fixes the cracks, as it were. Paul repeatedly refers to Timothy in many of his letters as his beloved child in the faith. So he's not a nobody. Paul is sending the Philippians one of his most prized possessions, his most prized companions. And he's doing it because he wants what's best for the Philippians. But he also says that he wants to wait to send Timothy. He's not going to send him first. He's going to send him second. He's waiting because he wants to send Timothy with news to the Philippians as soon as Paul knows what's going to happen to him in his trial. Paul hopes to come himself later, but he knows that there may be delays before he can get there. And because of the Philippians' own care for him, 
in his concern for them, he's going to send his best man so that their worries can be relieved. Paul could send anybody, right? Paul could send a message with Joe Schmo to say, here's what's going to happen with my trial. He doesn't just want to share news of his sentence with them, but he wants to send someone who's going to help their spiritual progress as well. So how is Timothy going to help the Philippians spiritually? Paul gives a number of examples of Timothy's character that he wants the Philippians to know about. He's commending him. First, we see Timothy's selflessness. He's a faithful servant. Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This point of selflessness is perhaps the chief point of sanctification that Paul has in mind for the Philippian church. It was the command that he gave to them in the beginning of chapter 2. It was the same command that prompted the insertion of the Christ hymn at the beginning of chapter 2 as well. And as we reflect on this command to be selfless, to put the needs of others before your own, we see that there would be little left in the way of correction if the church obeyed this command perfectly. Is this not much of the cause of our disagreements and conflicts in the body? That we're looking out for ourselves above and beyond the welfare of others. What would it look like instead of always thinking about me, my ambitions, my desires, my rights, what I deserve? If I instead were to ask, what can I do to best serve my brother, my sister? What would the love of Christ compel me to do for the good of my neighbor? How much different would the church look if that were our first inclination? There are a lot of people that Paul could point to who could step into the church at Philippi who would just come in only thinking about themselves, only thinking about how they can further their career, to gain their own notoriety. There's a lot of pastors you could point to who would say, no, it's, it's my way or the highway. You need to do what I say or else you need to leave. If you don't acquiesce to my preferences and serve my ministry and build my kingdom, then you're in sin. You need to repent. We all know, unfortunately, pastors who are like that. And Paul knows there are few things more destructive to a church than a bully pastor who always has to get his own way. Just why he sends them Timothy. 
a pastor who is always pointing to Christ's way. He's the pastor they will gladly listen to because they know that he has their sanctification first and foremost on his heart. That's that's his chief aim. It is serving them. And so Paul says, I'm sending you Timothy to put your needs above his own. And we'll see that Timothy is faithful. Paul says, you know Timothy's proven work. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Dads, how often do your children want to shadow you? When you're doing something around the house, whether it's changing the oil, building a bookcase, maybe you're sitting in a hunting blind, or just sitting by the fire in your favorite chair, reading a good book. Your, your kids just want to be with you. They want to do things the way you do them. I used to have one of those little tykes lawnmowers. You put the bubbles in, and as you mow, bubbles would come out. I, I would just follow my dad. He'd be mowing. I'd just walk right behind him, mowing the lawn, just, just like dad did and then i got old enough and he said here's the real lawnmower go go do it but kids love to mimic their parents they, they want to be like mom and dad for better or worse some days but kids want to do things the way their parents do them and paul is commending our brother timothy by saying, this is my beloved son. He has learned everything from me. The task of pastoring, he has watched me do. And like a son with a father, he is doing it just as faithful. He's not going his own way, inventing new theologies, new schemes, preaching different gospels. He's a faithful son doing things just like his dad. He's not going to deviate from the plan. He's not going to start adding more requirements for you than anything other than what I would give. He's going to be faithful to his calling. So I'm sending him to you. And that calling that Timothy is going to be faithful to is the calling of the gospel itself. His gospel centered in his ministry, and that Gospel-centeredness is what the church is ever in need of. You don't move on from the gospel. It is the power of salvation for those who do not yet believe, and it is the constant foundation of sanctification and the power for sanctification for the oldest saint. Christian never moves on from the gospel message. It is tempting sometimes to think, yeah, gospel, that's what you believe, your sinner separates you from God, Jesus died for your sins, you believe in him, you're made right, you think that that's the gospel, and I believe that, I come into the kingdom, and then I need to move on to something bigger and better and more profound than that. No, we don't need to move on to things that are more complex. Whatever we can learn about God is not us moving on from the gospel. It is us diving deeper into that gospel. See, there, there are two dangers for us 
if we forget that reality, that greater understanding is, is actually a greater understanding of the gospel. There's two dangers for us. First, we either think that the development of our doctrine and our understanding doesn't matter. Because we, we shouldn't be at the gospel. We're, we're gospel people. The gospel is just this small, narrow understanding of salvation. We just need to have that. And nothing else matters. No creed but Christ. That's one day. You think knowing God better, that's not important. Just makes things muddy and complex and causes fights. The second danger is that we can pursue our theological education and development in a way that becomes detached from the gospel, which then just becomes a cold mental exercise, just puffing ourselves up instead of growing up in love for Christ and increasing in our worship of him. Anything that you learn in your Bible about Christ, about God, about the gospel, is meant to increase your worship. And where worship is not increasing, it's because we have detached that information from what God has done for us and who we are in light of Christ and his salvation. That, that is how theology becomes cold and detached instead of warm and worshipful. Give an example. Everybody's favorite dinner topic, election. We're going to start some fights today. No, doctrine of election is not meant to start fights. You could get caught up in the weeds and think, that, that's not important. Why are you talking about these obscure things? Let's just get back to loving Jesus. This just creates division. Could say that. Or you can dive into every treatise available and, and arm yourselves to go to war with those people on the other side. And people on both sides do this, by the way. It's not those angry Calvinists. But you can just go and, and you're learning theology. You can fight your opponents and be proven right. Or it's a third way. You can humbly come to God's word to better understand who God is. And the means and the grounds by which he actually saves his people. You can know more of his grace towards you and be struck by that grace and fall down in worship and in awe of your God. I know the way that Paul is calling us to understand these doctrines. It is to know God better, to be gospel minded people that are urged into greater worship because they know their God better. Everything is connected to the gospel, and the gospel is connected to everything. All of our obedience, all of the commands of Scripture stem from that gospel truth. And Timothy is an ever-faithful selfless minister of that all-reaching gospel. And so Paul sends him to Philippi that they might learn from his example. 
But before Timothy comes, Paul sends Epaphroditus. And you've, you may have read this description that Paul gives of him and wondered, what exactly is Paul talking about? What's going on here? He's the minister to my need. He's filling up what is lacking from their service. And you think, I thought Paul liked these guys. Now he's saying that they didn't quite do what they were supposed to. And he's kind of dissing them and complaining. What, what's happening here? That's not quite what Paul is saying. Again, you mentioned this before, but if you're thrown in a Roman prison, you don't get from the Roman state three square meals a day and all of the warm clothing that you're going to need to survive in the prison. They just say, you're in prison, good luck. And if you're going to have your needs met, you need family and friends to come and actually provide what you need to survive in prison, even basic things like food and clothing. And so the Philippians heard, well, Paul's got himself thrown in prison again for the sake of the gospel. So, so we're going to take up this offering, this collection to help meet his needs. But after collecting the offering, there's one thing left that needs to be done, something that's lacking. Someone needs to actually go and bring it to him. You can't just wire money through Venmo to Paul in prison, and then he's all set. You, you've got to physically bring the gifts to him. So Paul's not complaining about their gift. He's just saying that Epaphroditus is the one who took that final step and brought him this gift. He made the journey to bring it to him. And somewhere along this journey, he gets sick. Paul says that he was near to the point of death. And in ancient Rome, near to the point of death, there's not a lot of treatments that bring you back from that point. Paul it was by the mercy of God that he actually recovered from death's doorstep. But after arriving, Epaphroditus recovers, and now Paul is going to send him back to the Philippian church with this letter laying out all that he has for them. And so in the same way that Paul commends Timothy, he commends his brother Epaphroditus as well. So what about his life does he want the Philippians to emulate? We see that first he is Christ-minded. Paul calls him my fellow worker and fellow soldier. These are two of Paul's favorite descriptions of the Christian servant who is laboring for Christ. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, he tells Timothy, oddly enough, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So when Paul applies these labels of soldier, of a workman, to Epaphroditus, he's confirming that this is what my brother cares about. He's longing to do Christ's will just as much as I am. So we have to understand that the Christian life, for all of us, not just 
those who take it really seriously. The Christian life for everyone is not a life where following Jesus is a half-hearted endeavor. It's not like you, you go about your day making all sorts of decisions and forming all sorts of actions, and then just a few minutes, maybe before each meal, before you go to bed, maybe five to ten minutes in the morning, then you'll think about your relationship with God. And then maybe if you're really committed, you're going to show up on Sunday and carve out an hour and a half to, to really think about God. But the other, I don't know how many hours of the week you're, you're going to spend just kind of going with the flow, going through the motions, doing what you want to do. That is not what it means to live the Christian life. Following Jesus means that you are a soldier who is under orders from your captain every second of the rest of your life. That's what it means to follow Christ. Everything that you do is oriented around who Christ is and what Christ says, making every decision that is going to be for the betterment, the best for your own sanctification and for the kingdom. And that's Epaphroditus. He's a guy who gets that, who understands that he's under orders from Christ. And all of God's people are also under orders from Christ. And he is going to set that example. He's a guy that if you're going to make sweeping life decisions, then, then you're going to go talk to him first. Because, you know, he's going to help you make those decisions in light of Christ's command. He's also compassionate. This is somewhat similar to Timothy's selflessness, but I think it's slightly different. And this description of Epaphroditus is just a beautiful statement that, that Paul makes, one of the most beautiful that he makes in these commendations. Paphroditus was near to the point of death. Everybody around him probably thought he was a goner. He was about to go meet Jesus face to face, if not for God's miraculous intervention. But he recovered us. He gets better. And how does he respond? Paul says that he has been longing for you all, for the Philippians, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Think about that for a moment. Somewhere along this journey, he gets so sick that he thinks he's going to die. Somebody from his party goes back to Philippi and reports it to the church. And now that he's gotten better, Epaphroditus is racked with worry for his brothers and sisters in Philippi because he doesn't want them to be unnecessarily worried about him, even though he's all better. How many of us in a similar situation would just, I'm better, praise the Lord. And now I'm going to go about my day. I got Paul to ministry. I've got all these things that I've got to do. But yeah, those in Philippi, they'll be okay. I'll get back there eventually. I don't need to worry about them. I was almost dead for crying out loud. 
And, and we just wouldn't think twice about those who are worried about us. Think God, they owe me this one. I almost died. My wife and I joke, sort of, about when we had, she had our first child. Uh, her, her labor took forever, multiple days. Uh, and so finally, she gets an epidural and we go to bed one night and uh, hospital had this chair with this, that folds down into a bed. It's like a plywood, like an inch of foam on top of it. So we go to sleep. We wake up. She asks, how are you doing? Oh, I didn't sleep very well. My back kind of hurts. His chair was uncomfortable. You just see the look on her face. Like, oh, you're uncomfortable. How sad. Now, wives who are in labor get a pass not to hear any complaints from their husbands who had a bad night of sleep. But Epaphroditus, he does not use his suffering as an excuse to stop caring for his family in Philippi. It's a lesson we could learn from. I think we often tend to treat our suffering as a license for selfishness. And I do not mean that if you're suffering, the answer is just buck up, cheer up, stop complaining, get over. That's not what I mean by this. Okay? What I mean is that suffering itself, even profound suffering, does not preclude you, does not preclude me, from the commands to love one another. Epaphroditus almost dies, and his chief concern is the worry that his brothers and sisters have. Suffering does not preclude us from loving the body. Romans 12, 15, Paul gives the command to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So, if your life is going great, everything is coming up, your way, and you see your brother and sister in mourning, you better mourn alongside of them. You don't get to say, oh, that's not my problem. It's just a downer. I'm going to ignore them because things are so much better for me. And likewise, if you're mourning, if you're going through trials in your life, you don't get to despise your brother, because it has gone well with them. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You mourn with those who mourn. You don't get to envy other people's lot in life because yours is currently one of hardship. The Christian life is one of selfless compassion and love for your brother, regardless of your circumstances. Again, it does not mean you can't ask for help. People don't come alongside of you and care for you in your mourning, but we don't use our suffering as an excuse to put other people at an arm's distance, to stop caring about them. Lastly, we see Epaphroditus was 
sacrificial. He knew the risks of making this journey. He knew that it was going to be long. It was going to be difficult. There were going to be trials and dangers. And he made the trip anyway because his brother was in need. And he was willing to lay his life down. In this case, almost literally, but would have at least been figuratively for the sake of his brother. He was willing to take on the hardships and sacrifice himself for Paul. There is probably a caveat that I need to make about setting healthy boundaries and add that somewhere in here. I'll let you make the caveat yourself. The question is still worth asking ourselves. Do we, as a church, do you, as a Christian, live your life with the willingness to sacrifice yourself in this way for the sake and for the good of your brothers and sisters? Are we willing to lay our lives down just as Christ laid his life down for us for the good of others? Again, everybody's capacity is different. Everybody's gifts are different. Praise the Lord for that. There are different ways to serve one another. We all go through different seasons where you can do more, you can do less. Not discounting any of that. I'm not going to question the volume of effort anybody here puts out. Let the Spirit work in your heart on this one. But I'm simply asking, when your brother or your sister is in need, how quickly do you jump to help? There's a million ways that you can jump to help. Some can pray. Some can give a phone call, write a letter, just offer an encouraging word. Some can make meals. Some can babysit. Some can show up and lend a hand. Again, it's going to look differently for everyone, but it is very easy to see somebody in need, somebody hurting, just look the other way. Think, eh, too bad. I'm too busy. I've got too much on my own plate. I don't actually really know how to best serve them. You know, I don't think I'd be very effective in this situation. So we just, eh, somebody else. We'll handle it. Paphrodite laid his life down for his brother. Because he had a savior who laid his life down for him. He understood how much had been done for him on the cross, was gripped by the reality of his servant savior and became a servant himself. We too have been given much in Christ, which ought to make us the freest people in the world to give to others for the sake of Christ. So as you think of all of these examples, you see the lives of these two men. Do you see what happens when the gospel takes root in the life of the church, do you see the mutual love 
that the Philippians have for Paul, that he has for them, that Timothy and Epaphroditus have for Paul and for the Philippians, that there is just this mutual love and all culminating in a love for Christ. That's what the church is supposed to look like. There are many men and women in this room that look like that. Exemplify all of these traits of unity and grace and sacrifice. And again, for, for all of us, we need to know as people. I think some people's calendar is about to get a little bit more full. You need to sit with them. You need to learn from them. You need to honor to thank them. You need to go and be like them. Set an example for others. For that is when the church is at her best. When she is learning to love the way her Savior loved her. And when to put the gospel on display in that love for one another. Let us pray. Father, we know this is hard. Know my own heart, likely all of our hearts, are to run towards selfishness, run towards self-preservation and self-interest. Would you help us remember Christ who laid himself down, that we might become better servants as we serve the one who gave himself for us? Oh, let this church be marked by love for one another. And let us put the gospel on display as we do. Pray all of this in our beloved Savior's name. Amen.